Take your Bibles, go to first, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter number 11. Second Corinthians chapter number 11. While you're turning, there's a part of this chapter that actually, uh, believe it or not, is really encouraging to me in a very strange way as a preacher. Uh, most of y'all know that preachers have a tendency of running rabbit trails, amen? It, it happens, amen, I get that. I can relate to that. Some of you, that was kind of one of those amen, like, what's wrong with you, preacher? That kind of reminded me a little bit, some of the some of you kids, it's like when I end up preaching too long and I run a rabbit trail and you know it's just delaying the end of this and it's like, no, don't go down that rabbit trail. I know last, uh, it was funny, last Sunday night, and whether you noticed it or not, I certainly noticed it, but uh, I... Uh, I went down a kind of a rabbit trail that I wasn't planning on going down, and so I started talking about something that I hadn't studied or prepared, and uh, I told my wife afterward, it's like, man, I felt like I had a hard time digging myself out of that hole, but uh, it happens with every preacher. Thank you for your patience and putting up with uh, with a well-intentioned shepherd that uh, certainly can relate to the Apostle Paul when he said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. But uh, some of you kids are like me. When I was uh, real, real young, my my parents weren't right with the Lord when I was real young, and we didn't go to restaurants very often. But um, when we did, my parents at that time were both coffee drinkers and cigarette smokers. And so I would sit at the booth at a restaurant, and I would have to, you know, back in those days, they smoked in restaurants, and so I'd have to sit there wanting to go play, and instead I'd have to sit there and suck in all of that secondhand smoke, and I was miserable, and I hated it. And so the waitress would come by, bless her heart, and she'd say, would you like some more coffee? And I'd be sitting there going, no! And of course, dad would say, yeah, fill her up, you know, and th- that would happen about three times. Some of you young people, when the preacher goes down a rabbit trail, you're a lot like that. No! But this chapter, actually, Paul runs a rabbit trail. If you notice that our text here this morning is uh, verses 1 through 4, followed by verse 13 through 15. Now, there are parenthetical statements in the, the scripture where it's kind of a parenthesis. It's related to what's being talked about, but it's definitely a whole different thought in and of itself. Between verse 5 and verse number 12, you don't find parentheses, but it definitely, as you look at the context, it's a rabbit trail that Paul goes down that is, it's connected to what he's saying, but then when he gets to verse number 13, if you took that portion out and just connected verse 4 with verse 13, it would completely flow. And so uh, it, it just encourages me that Paul did it. I'm no better than Paul. I'm no worse than Paul. It's just, it is what it is when it comes to preachers. There will be rabbit trails from time to time. Verse number 1, let's stand in honor of the Word of God here this morning. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse number 1, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear 
lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Notice now verse number 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. I want to preach this morning on the corrupting complications of Satan. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for what we just read. I believe with all of my heart that every one of us as believers, we need to be familiar with the truths in this passage of Scripture. We ask that you'd help us to present these truths with clarity uh, Lord, concisely, uh, Lord, uh, as we were talking about rabbit trails, Lord, they happen. We certainly want liberty uh, behind this pulpit to be able to speak freely, to not be afraid of man or to be a man pleaser, but to totally be focused on the Holy Spirit of God. But help us, Lord, to present these truths in a way that you can use it. We do pray that you would bring instruction, uh, perhaps even conviction, and we pray that you'd help us to expose the wiles of the devil as he tries to corrupt our minds. And uh, I pray that we would stay focused on those things that would be helpful. Uh, bless us now with your presence and your power in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're familiar with Paul's epistles to the church at Corinth, uh, he wrote two epistles. And the first letter was really a lot of rebuking on their, for their carnality and the problems that they had in the church. And in 2 Corinthians, the, much of the letter is Paul basically defending his own ministry. If you look at our text in verse number 1, he said, I would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly. Now, folly is basically kind of the verb of foolishness. And so Paul's not necessarily saying that he is presenting to them foolishness, but he is saying that I'm speaking to you as a man. Paul would do that on occasion. And, and he's saying that, listen, I'm just representing me, and there were a lot of things that Paul had to do in order to defend his own ministry. In verse number 2, we find the word jealousy. Paul said, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Jealousy is a mixture of love and fear. There are good kinds of jealousy. There are evil kinds of jealousy. I find in the Word of God that our God is a jealous God. I mean, He is jealous over us. He wants us all to Himself. Listen, God doesn't want to be high on your priority list. God wants to be number one on your priority list. Anything that puts God anywhere but number one, you have false gods in your life. You're serving yourself. God is always holy, and in His jealousy, He is never selfish. 
In verse number 3, we see here that the Corinthian Christians were easily led astray, and Paul knew it. He said, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. Paul knew these believers, and he knew that they were very susceptible to being deceived and to being led astray. In verse number 4, notice he says that if somebody came to you and preached another Jesus, you, you very well might believe them. You might receive another spirit or another gospel. In other words, the Corinthian Christians had a tendency to be very, very naive, much like modern Christians today. You know, there are preachers and ministries out there that will totally make merchandise of you. They will tell you what you want to hear. They'll puff up your ego. They'll make Christianity like a self-motivation seminar, and you'll put plenty of money in the offering plate. You'll buy their books. You'll, you'll, you'll watch their TV programs, all of those things, and they never even come close to giving you the whole counsel of God. That's the state of Christianity today. And I have no doubt in my mind that if the Apostle Paul were alive today, this is what he would write to many churches in America today. He said that, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I'd like to start out here this morning by taking us back to Genesis chapter number 3. And I'd like us to analyze, you're going to have to put on a little bit of your thinking cap here this morning, and I'd like to analyze what exactly did the serpent do to beguile Eve? How did he deceive her? How do you go into a perfect place, talk to people who are perfect, You know, really, Satan tempting us today, it's pretty easy task because we already have something inside of us that's drawn away to our own lusts and enticed. We are bent towards sin. We are lean, we lean toward temptation most of the time anyhow. And so Satan can tempt us easily, but how do you go in and tempt someone who's completely innocent, who is sinless and lives in a sinless environment? Well, I think we need to recognize here this morning, we need to give the devil his due. He is extremely subtle. He knows how to take you down. He's good at it. And he's been good at it for a very, very long time. Notice here in Genesis 3, in verse number 1, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. The word subtle means that he works under the surface. He doesn't work out in the open. You know, if the devil's working in your life, the first thing that you need to do in order to defeat him is to expose him for who he is, not listen to his lies. He will fill your mind with lies or partial truths. The only way you can deal with it is with absolute truth. Jesus fought the devil with the Word of God. Jesus said, it is written. The Lord said, Jesus would quote the Scripture as He dealt with the devil. And Jesus had a proper understanding of the Scripture. You know, the devil wants to come in and he wants to just kind of twist it and pervert it. 
I'll say more about that here in just a moment. But he works under the surface. And the, the first thing we have to do is we have to recognize that and we have to be watchful. You know, if I'm walking down the sidewalk in Statesville, I'm probably not worried about stepping on a rattlesnake. Are you? But you know what? If I go into the mountain, there are certain places that I've been fishing or I've been walking in the mountains. There are some, there are some rivers and creeks back where I came from in Idaho that you'd go fishing and you knew that as you walked through the field, you'd walk through a pasture to get down to the river. You better have your fishing rod out in front of you and you better be hitting the grass out in front of you. Because I've had numerous times where you start doing that and you hear that rattle and you move this way. Or, uh, you know, we've seen them. One time I, I just about scared my brother-in-law to death. We were walking through the grass. I think I've told this before. We're hitting the grass out in front of us and he's right in front of me. And I got this little evil idea and I reached over and I slapped him in the calf with my fishing rod. Now, I'm not kidding you. He jumped straight up in the air, spun around and looked toward me while he's still midair, came down. And I, I listen, I, I, I'm probably exaggerating this, but in my mind, I could see the color just go. And as soon as I did it, I thought, oh, that was so mean. It was just, you know, one of those little mischievous things that overcome you. You didn't plot it or plan it. It was just there. And then you do it and you think, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. I don't worry about stepping on a rattlesnake in certain places, but there's other places that I better be aware that they're lurking and I better be careful and I better be mindful because they're subtle. They hide and they're going to get you if you are not being cautious to the fact that they're there. It's the same way. You know, this life that we live in, I hate to tell you this, but even here in the church house, you've got to be careful Rattlesnakes are everywhere in this life that we live, and we need to be aware of Satan's subtleties. So the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, watch this, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The first thing that I want us to think about and see here is that Satan questions the word of God. He's very positive. Yea, he doesn't start out with saying, God didn't say that. He said, yea, hath God said. He starts out with a very subtle and a pleasant and what seems to be a very reasonable question mark. Satan works with question marks. That's how he always starts working his wiles. His biggest subtlety is to create doubt in the authority of the Bible. Now, A modern application of that is this. It does, and I have to say, it seems plausible to say this. Well, young people today don't understand the these and the thous in the King James Version. That seems plausible, does it not? It sounds good. I mean, we want young people to understand the Bible, don't we? It sounds so nice and understanding and subtle But you know what, folks, when you start changing and altering the Word of God, you create this atmosphere of question marks. You know, I grew up in an atmosphere where 
much, I, probably almost every sermon that I would hear as a child growing up is the preacher would get up and he'd read his text and almost always they would start comparing Bible versions. Well, this version says this and I would often hear, well, I like the way that this version reads. I didn't know any better as a child. It just seemed like that's the way that it was. That's what preachers do. They study and they want to expose more information and help the people to understand. But can you not see the subtlety that is happening when you start making statements like this? Well, I like what this version says, or I think that this one says it better. And then they'll even tell you these absolute blatant lies. They'll say, the original says this. They don't have it. They've never had the original. You say, well, the original language. Well, okay, which one? The the manuscripts don't all agree. And so these little subtleties, what it did in my mind, and I didn't even know it was doing it, are we not talking about the subtlety of Satan? Satan working without us knowing he's working, all it did was create this big question mark that when I read my Bible... I can't really know or have confidence that the words that I'm reading are exactly what they're supposed to be. And so Satan starts out with, yea, hath God said. When the infallibility and the authenticity of any word in the Bible is questioned, then the authority of the author is weakened. When authority is weakened, guess what? So is the power. We know the rest of the story. Eve Eve thought that she knew the Word of God, but she had a very weakened version of the Word of God. It wasn't powerful enough to help her overcome the wiles, the temptations, the subtleties of the serpent. Hey, Jesus had no problem with it. He said, point blank, it is written. And he quoted the Word of God. He could quote it easily because he was the Word of God incarnate. But he knew what the Word of God really said and really meant, and he was able to quote it, and he had the power to overcome the devil, uh, certainly, and we'll see here in a minute, Eve did not. Now, here's exactly what God did say. Genesis 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. I don't know how many trees were in this garden. I I, I have a gut feeling that it was a pretty good-sized garden because you got got four rivers that are parting and coming out of that. I think it's a good-sized garden, and I think there were probably, no doubt, a lot of trees. And God says, you can freely eat. Help yourself. Wouldn't you like to be able to eat all that you wanted to eat and not get fat and unhealthy? Wouldn't you like to be able to pick and choose whatever trees that you wanted and not worry about what has more calories and what has more fat. I mean, God says, help yourself. Freely eat. You know, you leave that out and you have a God that's basically saying, hey, I'm going to just, I'm going to give you enough to get by. But the reality of it here is you've got a God that is not just giving you enough to get by. He's giving you enough to enjoy and to have freedom and eat all that you want, all the variety. That's how good that our Creator is and was. But that gets left out. Verse number 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The Lord kept it simple. Man didn't need to know everything. You know, we, we know a thing or two about the effects of the eating of that fruit, do we not? I mean, not only do we experience the effects of it at a funeral, but we experience the effects of it at a courthouse. We experience the effects of it when we read the newspaper and hear about horrible things that have happened to people. We re- I mean, there are so many things of the effects of eating of that fruit that God didn't explain it to Adam and Eve because he didn't need to. He simply kept it simple. He gave man what he needed to know and nothing more. Man, hey, listen to this. Man just needed to trust him. Wouldn't you agree? We just needed to trust him. God said, I'm giving you all of the trees to freely eat, but I don't want you to eat of this one because in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. God kept it simple, but the devil came in and tried to complicate it with his subtlety. Yea, hath God said? Is that really what God meant? Well, what about what another version of the Bible says about that? Well, you know what? I just don't see it that way. And isn't, aren't these the type of things that happen in the mind of people before they disobey the commandments of God and bring upon themselves not only God's judgment, but the horrible effects of sin in their life? Hey, look at verse number 4 with me. Verse number 4, it says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Satan always takes takes it to the next level when he knows he has an ear. Eve's first mistake, her first mistake was engaging in dialogue with anyone who questioned her God. That's where it all started. I've told you this before, but it's just, I can't think of a better illustration of that. When we were over in Egypt, and whenever I've been at a tourist place in third world countries and different places that They're always selling uh, trinkets and souvenirs and what have you. But especially in Egypt, I mean, we would be we would be around the pyramids, and you would walk by somebody that would have souvenirs, and they would, I mean, they would get your attention. They'd step out in front of you, and they would continue. They'd say, "Hey, come on, come on, I make you a good deal. Come on, only five dollar," and they'd show it to you. It's almost free, and they'd just go on and on and on. And I, I didn't understand other world cultures. And so I would be polite, and I would say, no, thank you, and they would persist. And I'd say, oh, it's okay, not, not today, and they would persist. You know why that was? I was engaging in dialogue with them, and so they knew they had my attention. Even though my response was no, they still had me engaged, and so they're going to pursue it. They're going to continue. That's where Eve's problem started right there. She should have never engaged in dialogue when the the serpent came and said, Yea, hath God said, she should have said, Yes, he did. Get thee behind me, Satan. That's where she messed up. 
Back in the Reagan era, they had a slogan. I think Nancy Reagan came up with it. Just say no to drugs. You know what I say? Don't say no. Don't say nothing at all. Just flee it. Get away from it. Don't engage in dialogue with the devil. Apologetics are good. You know what apologetics are? Trying to prove people today, and I hear this so much. Well, I would believe in God if you could just prove to me that he exists. And you know, I've read some good books. Uh, I, I preached a sermon not long ago about atheism, and I felt like that we had some pretty good points to give. Apologetics are good, but most debate over God is not sincerely about the lack of information or proof. People believe science without a single shred of actual evidence. Oh, billions and billions of years ago. I mean, they'll even tell you, you watch Discovery Channel, and they will tell you all of the mating rituals of different types of dinosaurs, and they figure all that out based on three bones that they found in the dirt. It's true. It's true that it's not true. They don't know. They're speculating. And it's all theory and speculation, and yet they present it as fact, and then they turn around and they accuse us of being ignorant like we're some kind of a cult because we believe the Word of God. The issue is not apologetics or information. The issue is the heart. Satan won in the garden by perverting the Word of God, and he's doing it very effectively today. How many popular preachers today say much about hell? You don't hear many messages on hell. Those old-time preachers, and they preached on hell all the time. And they would get questioned. They'd say, why do you preach so much on hell? And they would say with tears running down their cheeks, because we don't want you to go there. It wasn't mean-spirited. It wasn't manipulative. It was simply telling the truth. How often did Jesus Christ Himself warn people about hell? More than any other man recorded in the Word of God, Jesus warned about hell. He told us the literal historic story of a rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man went to hell, and he lift up his eyes being in torments. And you know what the so-called ministers of righteousness do today? They say that's just a parable. Now, they don't bother to tell you what the parable means, but Jesus never ever said that Luke 15 was a parable. He said a certain rich man, and then he named a man named Lazarus. It wasn't a parable, it was a story that actually literally took place. Let's read this once again from our opening text, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. We're not talking about some made-up religion here. We're not talking about paganism. We're talking about something that claims to be Christian And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. It appears righteous, it appears good, there's good works, there's religious deeds, but uh, he says, therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Beware of anyone who sounds very Christian, 
You know, there are religions, one of the biggest Christian religions in this world believes in the Trinity, will teach you the deity of Jesus Christ, but they will tell you emphatically in their literature, in their sermons, in everything official that they propagate, they will tell you that there is no salvation outside of their religion. And yeah, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be baptized, and you also have to partake in communion, and you also have to do all of these things in order to earn the grace of God. Folks, that's a lie. It appeals to the religious nature in man. Listen, there's religions that are on the same radio station as we are, that they want to get you under the Old Testament law, under the Sabbath, and all of the different things. They want to try to add something, and what they're doing is they're corrupting your minds from the simplicity that's in Jesus Christ, complicating it. You know, there are... I'm an independent Baptist. There are independent Baptists that do the same thing. And they won't come out and tell you another gospel, but boy, they'll emphasize something that is insignificant to the point that it creates the illusion in people's minds that you're saved by works. It's like, well, you're not saved if you don't dress a certain way, if you don't act a certain way, and so forth. All that does is just corrupt people's minds. Just because something appears to be good and nice and even righteous, that does not mean that it is of Christ because Satan works through those subtleties. Back at our uh, passage in Genesis chapter number three, look with me at verse number five. Verse five says, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Not only does Satan question the word of God, not only does he defy the warning of God, but we see that he challenges the integrity of God. God knows, he says, that when you eat of it, you're going to be like him. It all comes down to trust. You're going to trust someone or something. You're going to have to decide, do you trust the Bible Or do you trust the scientist? Do you trust the Word of God? Or do you trust some religious organization? Money, science, education, religion. And how about this one? I think I I wouldn't be doing a good job this morning if I didn't mention this one. How about your emotions? There are a lot of Baptists A lot of King James Bible-believing Baptists, that when it comes right down to it, they trust their emotions more than they trust what thus saith the Lord. And Satan's perfectly fine with that. Anytime we trust anything that is not God and His Word, we are being misled by His subtleties. 2 Timothy 1, verse number 7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Hey, any time that we don't have, any time that we have a spirit of fear, or we don't have a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind, we can rest assured that this is not coming from God. This is coming from the devil. Satan is a master at causing you to doubt God's Word. 
Listen, anytime you disobey God and think it is in your own good to do so, you have been duped by the devil. Anytime you think that God is unreasonable in His expectations or trying to control your life and rob you of pleasure, guess what? You've been duped by the devil. Anytime you think you can sin and not have consequences, yep, you guessed it, you've been duped by the devil. So how can we protect our mind from Satan's corruption? Look at Genesis 3 and verse number 2 with me. It says here, first of all, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. All right, the first thing that we can do to protect our minds from Satan's corruption is, number one, know the Word of God firsthand. Know it firsthand. Wouldn't you agree that Eve's response to the serpent, we already read exactly what God said, what God told Adam. Eve's response to the serpent, it seems so casual. She left out the word freely. She left out the word surely. And it's obvious that she had merely listened to what her husband had to say about it and had never ventured into listening to God firsthand. Listen, church attender, church member, knowing about the Bible is a good thing. But it will be powerless when the serpent shows up in your life. Psalm 119, verse number 11, Thy word have I hid where? In my heart that I might not sin against thee. You don't hide it in your heart secondhand. You hide it in your heart firsthand. Eve should have been out there saying, Hey, Adam, you told me about the God. You told me about what God said. Hey, can I go on a walk with you and him some morning? I'd like to hear it firsthand for myself. And you know, the average Christian today is fine with being spoon-fed from the preacher. Listen, I'm glad you're here today. And I'll do the very best that I can to tell you what is true from the Word of God. But you need to know it firsthand from the Bible. Number two, understand the difference between a commandment and a standard. Understand the difference between a commandment and a standard. If you notice, Eve told the serpent that the fruit of the tree was not to be touched. God never said that. Eve is playing the fool. Now, she hasn't touched it yet, but she's hanging around it and looking at it. And as we've said before, it all comes down to the heart and trust. If she trusted God, wouldn't you agree, if she trusted God and His Word... She wouldn't have had to add that, well, you can't touch it either. She wouldn't have even hung around it. She would have just stayed away from it. I think I said this maybe last week. Too many Christians, the average Christian, figures out how much they can get away with and not feel like they've crossed the line. That's not the heart for God that we need to have. That's like the husband, like you're saying, hey, honey, what's, what's the bare minimum that I can do to make you happy? 
or my goal in life is not to make you happy, but just to keep you from being mad at me. What kind of relationship is that? What kind of love, what kind of trust is that? That's not what God wants to have with us. He doesn't want to have us saying, well, what, what, what's the rules here? You know, there are a lot of things that you can do in this life, participate in, that are not sin in and of themselves. But many of those things will lead you to sin. And you know what Satan wants to do? He wants to complicate your mind from the simplicity that's in Christ. And he wants you to see religion as a list of rules. You know, you can have a good list of rules. They can be a right list of rules. You know, the Bible has all kinds of principles that tell us where we ought to have our rules. You know, the Bible addresses how, how we dress. You know, the Bible addresses hair length. Do you know that the Bible addresses what day you should go to church? Do you know that the Bible addresses, I mean, all kinds of things in our life? And so rules are not, not, not necessarily bad, but it's not supposed to be about rules. Teenagers, you know what happens? The devil will corrupt your mind into thinking that church and Christianity is all about living up to a set of rules. You know what your problem is? You don't have a heart for God. If you had a heart for God, you would love Him, and you wouldn't be saying, what's the bare minimum that I can get away with? You would be saying, Lord, what can I do that puts a smile on your face? Eve wasn't interested. Eve, there's something about that tree and that fruit that she's hanging around it and she's looking at it, she had missed the point and she didn't understand the difference between a commandment and a standard. I I don't know this for a fact. This could have been Eve making it up. I think it's also possible that Adam added, don't touch it, because maybe he saw Eve being curious and He's worried about his wife, and instead of just saying, God said, don't eat of it, he said, God said, don't eat it or touch it. He might have added that. And you know, sometimes as preachers and as parents, you know what we do? Sometimes we draw the line and say, I don't want you doing this, and I don't want you doing that. And sometimes young people think, well, it's just they won't let me do anything. They're trying to stifle me, and they won't let me be myself. And the whole time they don't realize that that. God and the preacher and the parent is not trying to stifle you. They're trying to protect you from you. Do you know that God, the Bible says that the commandments were added because of transgression? Do you know that God would have been just fine in not even giving us the Old Testament law if man would have just followed the Lord? Man kept doing the wrong thing and God says he's not getting it. He's not trusting me. He's not loving me. So I'm going to spell it out in detail. That's why the Bible says that the letter killeth. Listen, there are too many relationships, husband, wife, parents, children, pastor, church, that is based upon the letter. It's based upon rules rather than based upon love and trust the way that God wants it to be. Number three. What was Eve's mistake or what can you and I do to protect our minds from the corruption of Satan? Well, 
We can make God and His Word personal. Notice once again, verse number 2. She said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. That was her response. We can eat of the fruit of the trees. But notice in verse number 3 said, But God hath said, Ye shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, and so forth. You know, it's a little subtle difference here, but if you analyze this response, in verse number 2, she's taking this commandment personally. She said, yeah, we can eat of it. But then, on the negative side, she said, well, God said that we can eat of it. It it seems like a real subtle difference, but... The fact of the matter is, it exposes Eve's heart that she hadn't made God her personal God. All she can see is the do not do this. If if God was her personal God, you know what she would have said? Yeah, we can eat freely of every tree in the garden, but we can't eat of that tree. She would have made it personal. She would have showed and demonstrated to the serpent that, hey, God said this, but you know what? I'm saying it because I agree with God. I'm not wishing that God said anything different. I trust Him. He's my God. If He said it, it's right and true. So now I'm saying it because I believe it to be true. That's the problem with too many Christians and people who profess to be Christians as they've not made God and His Word personal. You know that repentance is simply when we take God's side against us? You know, I have no problem. I can tell you point blank, you're looking at a man that deserves to split hell wide open. If God put my worthless carcass into a devil's hell, God would still be good, He would still be just, and I would get just exactly what I deserve. And until I recognized that and accepted that, I wasn't ready to turn my heart away from me and the world and sin and turn my heart toward God. Hey, listen, I'm on God's side. And if you're going to repent, then you're going to have to get on God's side as well. The Bible is powerless in our lives until we make it personal. His word must become our word. In conclusion, let me talk about the simplicity that's in Christ. I'm so glad that there is simplicity in Jesus Christ. The devil complicates, religion complicates it, but God keeps it real, real simple. Acts 16, verse number 30. Here's Paul and Silas. They're in the jail. They're shackled up, not shacked up. They're in shackles. They're singing praises to God at midnight. They've been beaten and whipped. They got blood running down their back. No doubt it still hurt. I mean, it probably hurt really, really bad. And they started singing praises to God. An earthquake came that was sent by God. The Philippian jailer runs in and says they brought him out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Look how simple this is. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Notice it, it says believe on Jesus Christ. When you believe on something, you're, you're, you're putting yourself on 
that something. I believe on that chair. I can look at it from here and say I believe in that chair, but I'm not believing on it until I go sit down in it and trust it. And it's the same way. It's just simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And guess what? That Philippian jailer believed and he got saved. It's that simple. I think about Peter walking on the water, Matthew 14 and verse number 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried saying, Lord, save me. It don't get any simpler than that, folks. He's sinking. He knows it. And he knows that there's only one person that can save him. Keep in mind here, Jesus is still on the water. Jesus is not in the boat here. Jesus is still standing there on top of that water. Peter's sinking. And he he doesn't start swimming to the boat. I think that's what most people do when they start to sink. They try to find a secure place in a ship. That ship's in the same storm, and that ship could go down just as easily as Peter. But Peter trusted Jesus, and he said, Lord, save me. Doesn't get any simpler than that. Don't let the devil complicate or corrupt your mind from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. It's this simple. You provide the sinner, and God provided the Savior. Keep it simple and trust God. Would you bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, and we thank you for the simplicity that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried and rose again the third day. We thank you, Lord, that we have to do nothing more than just provide you with a sinner. Lord, accepting who we are, acknowledging that, taking your side against us, and then putting our trust in you. You provided the Savior. You you sent your only begotten Son to die on the cross to save us from our sins. And Lord, I realize that there are so many more things that we get when we get saved. But Lord, help us that we wouldn't allow the devil to complicate our relationship with you. Now, Lord, I'm sure that there are some people listening here today, young or old alike, that the devil's come in and he's filled, corrupted their mind with this idea that being a Christian is all about keeping a list of rules Lord, I pray that you would shine the light of the truth to help them to realize, God, that you're looking for something way, way more than that, way more than just outward appearance. But, Lord, you're looking for a relationship in the heart. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be touched, that we would recognize your love for us, and that we would truly trust you, God, because you are truly trustworthy. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.